And if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of First Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 6 through 17. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 17. As you're turning there, I found out this morning that it's also Bryson Gish's birthday, Bryson. So I had to take the opportunity to embarrass Bryson back there in the corner. So happy birthday, Bryson, as well. <laughs> He's not yet over the hill yet. He's still young. Under the hill? No. I <laughs> also want to thank Mark Noah for covering for me last week, uh, last Sunday, um, and Kevin Presley the, the Wednesday before that. We had a great time. We were down in Florida. My son Matthew's homeschool football team took uh, first place at the National Homeschool Football Association Championship. There's his team right there. Pretty awesome. It says, uh, play for the ring and live for the king. You know, you get a ring if you win the championship. But what they don't tell you is the ring costs $300 if you want the ring. And so they played for the ring. They didn't get the ring. I don't think anyone did. But, uh, but anyway, uh, it was cool. They beat a, a, you look at the score there, 44 to nothing. So they, they uh, and it was a homeschool team from, from uh, Texas that they beat. So it's pretty awesome. Pretty proud of them. It was, it was awesome. So. But it's great to be back, great to be back here in Springfield and back in God's Word. And so uh, let's look at what Peter has to say to us. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6, all the way down to verse 17. Peter writes this, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God and the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The title of my study this morning is, Are You Ready to Go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, and to know, Lord, that you are here in this place, and that your Holy Spirit is within us as believers, and that you desire to speak to us through your word, to give us not only information, but application in our lives, that we might glorify you with our lives. And so we pray your blessing upon our time. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their hearts and life to you. They, they don't know at this time that your son is the Lord and the Savior of their lives. We pray that they would surrender their hearts this morning. 
and come to know you as Lord and Savior. So we ask that you would bless this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would you do if you found out that the rapture of the church was going to happen one month from today? Now, I'm not saying that it, that it is, but just think about what would your reaction be if it were? What would your mindset be? What would become your focus? Would you quit your job? You bet right away. You know, I don't know. Would you go on a spending spree and you know just run up all your credit cards? Would you go on a three and a half week vacation to somewhere you've always wanted to go? And I doubt that would be the course of any of us here. We wouldn't be so irresponsible. Besides, you know, we're smart enough to know that there isn't a vacation paradise on this earth that's going to compare to being home in heaven. Now, I would venture to say that most, if not all of you, would take an entirely different approach. Most of you would get even more serious about the kingdom of God. It would be like the last lap of the race. You just really just pour it on. You would go all out seeking more opportunities to be used by the Lord in these final moments. Seeking to add one more jewel upon that heavenly crown. You would make sure that you're ready to go. No doubt we would all be more aggressive about evangelism. Sharing the Lord with our co-workers, our family, our friends, neighbors. Realizing that it's just not going to matter if our neighbor gets mad at me or offended at me for, for telling him about Jesus or telling him that he's a sinner. And I'm not going to be here anyway. I mean, you know, I won't have to deal with it. But I'm sure that most of us would be looking for and seeking to create some open doors for sharing with everyone and anyone we come in contact with. You know, the, the checker at Price Cutter, the, 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 the clerk at, at, at Starbucks, just because just maybe they may listen to you and receive the Lord. My, my guess is I would probably wouldn't be so concerned about things like the latest fashions or, or what's out in the movies. Suddenly certain things would become very irrelevant. Many of you heard this last week that teen idol David Cassidy passed, passed away. I had an opportunity to see him in, in a Broadway show he was in, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, years ago. He was, he was excellent in it. But his daughter reported that his last words, maybe you caught this just before he died, his words were, so much wasted time. See, the fact of the matter is, none of us, no matter rich or poor, can add more time to our lives. That's why Psalm 90 verse 12 tells us, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. See, the Lord could take us home today like David Cassidy, or he could come back in the rapture of the church right now. Right now. Right now. I'll keep trying. The bottom line is we just don't know. We certainly look around and we see the times in which we're living in. It certainly points to the fact that Jesus could return at any moment. Two weeks ago, we were at a pastor's conference out in California, from California to Florida. But, but uh, it was amazing. That it was a great conference. Um, you know, a lot of the pastors brought up the fact of what would Pastor Chuck say if he was still around when it comes to end times. And, 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 uh, and you know, one of the things that Pastor Chuck would always say when we gather together, is it, keep your eyes on Russia. When you see Russia get involved in the Middle East, you know that, that Jesus' return is near. And, and, and certainly, I mean, Russia is more involved in the Middle East than we've ever seen before in this day and age. Obviously leaning towards and pointing towards Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and all of that. But here's my point. 
If we truly believe that Jesus could return at any moment, then we're going to live like it. And that's what Peter's telling us here in our section of Scripture this morning. We're going, to, we're going to look at three things. We're going to do three things if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to make sure our foundation is on Christ. Number two, we're going to make sure our focus is on heaven. And number three, we're going to make sure our witness is fine. And these are our three points this morning. Number one, make sure our foundation is on Christ. Look at verse 6. Peter says, therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. See, Peter says it's contained in Scripture. He's actually quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16, which says, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem. A firm and tested stone, it is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes needs never be shaken. Obviously, a, a prophetic verse concerning Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. Now, in our day and age, you know, unless you're a stonemason, you probably don't think much about cornerstones because most of our houses, they don't have cornerstones. We have poured foundations, you know, and studded walls. But in the first century, you know, Israel, the pri- in Israel, the primary building material, at least the foundational material, was stone. And so the most important stone of the whole house or the, what was the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone to be placed and laid in construction. It became the foundation of which all the other stones were laid upon. And so that stone had to be perfect, had to be right in the right place, because if it was off even a little bit... And then, then all the whole the structure would be off. I mean, those who are in construction know how frustrating that can be when a foundation is not plumb. I read a story about in 1990 how in the Leaning Tower of Pisa it was destined to fall, and scientists, scientists reported that this 179-foot tower was 17 feet out of plumb and it was moving about 1 20th of an inch per year. And they predicted by the year 2007 that if nothing was done to prevent it, that the tower would definitely have, have collapsed. So they fixed it. They fixed it by placing these weights on the north side of the tower and removing tons of soil from underneath it. The tower was straightened by 18 inches, returning it to the last position uh, that it occupied in 1838. And, and now the tower has been stabilized and such that it has stopped moving for the first time in history. What I thought was significant is that the word Pisa actually means marshy land, which gives us some clue as to why the tower began to lean even before it was completed. The foundation underneath it is, is marshy, soft ground consisting of clay, fine sand, and, sh- and shells, as well as the fact that the foundation was only 10 feet deep. Here's my point. In the world today, people have based their lives off of many different foundations, marshy foundations. Maybe it's a, the New Age Foundation, or perhaps it's a good works is their foundation. Oh, you know, the attitude, as long as I do you know, enough good things, then I'm okay. People have placed their, their foundation on money, their finances. Oh, this, I'm secure in this, or, or trusting in themselves. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I like the old hymn that goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, a solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. Any other foundation is sinking sand. See, here Peter tells us in verse 6, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's our foundation. Then he goes on, look at verse 7. He says, To you who believe, 
He is precious. Now, I love this. Once again, here you have this big old rugged fisherman, Peter, using the word precious. You know, whenever Peter speaks about Jesus' blood, you know, or any part of, of him, he uses the word precious. I love it because it describes perfectly what Jesus did for us. Who is more precious? Or what is more precious than the sacrifice that Jesus made for us upon the cross? Who is more precious than our Savior, Jesus? And here, Peter's saying, Jesus is precious to us who believe. He says, but to those who don't believe, he's offensive. Look at the rest of verse 7. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I read it. There's tradition that during the construction of Solomon's temple, work was, was going very smoothly until the builders were unable to locate their cornerstone. Word was sent out to find the missing stone, uh, you know, and, and where it was to have them send it up. And, and word got back and said, hey, we sent that stone up a long time ago, the quarries replied. Well, the builders were confused until one of them remembered a perfectly cut stone was tossed over the gully into the Kidron Valley because no one knew what to do with it. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but the rejected cornerstone is a biblical reference that shows up all throughout Scripture. Here, Peter is telling us that Jesus Christ is the stone that was rejected. And we know that the Jews rejected him and the Gentiles rejected him. And in fact, when Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, even his own father rejected him, at least for a little while. Well, because, but because he himself was sinless, God raised him up and placed him as, as a cornerstone. He is our foundation. But to those that don't know him, to those that are disobedient, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, if you don't agree with what Peter's saying here, then I challenge you to go to the public college or state university and try to speak the name of Jesus. See if you don't get some stumbling there going on there. Just try to speak the name of Jesus in the hollowed halls of our humanistic, socialist, government-run school system. Try and sing a Christmas carol in public school that actually speaks of what Jesus Christ came to do and who he is. You get stopped right away, you'll be shut down. Why? Because Jesus has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's the problem. Jesus described it well in John 3.19. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Listen, Peter tells us no one can avoid the cornerstone. You're either going to get tripped up and stumble over him and reject him or you're going to accept him and build your life upon him, not just his teaching, but upon the person of Jesus Christ. But the one thing you can't do is ignore him. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You're either walking with me or you're walking in opposition to me. There is no neutral ground. Well, Peter goes on, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we looked at this verse last time. He goes on in verse 10. You were once not a people but are now the people of God who had obtained mercy, but now, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I love that. I love that. God's called us now His church. We've obtained mercy. If there's one Christmas present you want to unwrap, it's the mercy of God. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. But because Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, He has shown us mercy through the cross and given us new life. So our foundation is in Jesus Christ. He is our chief cornerstone. And as we looked at last time, we're now living stones being used by God to help build His kingdom. And this brings us to our second point. Make sure our focus 
is on heaven. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, I beg you. He's pleading with them. And then he says in verse 7, he calls us sojourners. That word sojourner means strangers or foreigner, one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship. We as Christians, we're, we're foreigners in a secular society because our citizenship is in heaven. And the more we grow in our walks with the Lord, the more that we come to discover that our mindset and our approach to this life is different than the rest of the world and it's getting more and more different as life goes on. And our life should be different than those around us because the world doesn't know us because they don't know Him. But we're not just strangers, sojourners. Peter also says we're pilgrims. Another translation of that word would mean travelers. That has the idea that we're, we're on the road, we're traveling, we're just passing through on our way to our destination. As the old Willie Nelson sing, we're on the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. Listen, this life is a pilgrimage. We're on the road that leads to heaven. And we want to make it to our destination. This world is not our home. Now we might enjoy some of the places we visit, but we're just visiting. We don't want to live there permanently. We want to get to our destination. Last week we traveled 13 hours to get down to Panama City, Florida for my son's football game down there, which he won the homeschool national title, if I didn't mention that already. But it was great. But it was another 13 hours to get home after it was all over. And we left Sunday morning about 5.30 in the morning and got home around 7 that evening. We did it all in one shot. Now, all along the way, we didn't go, you know, we just ought to stop here and, and make this town our home. 20 miles away. You know, we ought to stop here and make this town our home. Another 10 miles. No, we ought to stop here. This looks like a nice home. No, we wanted to make it toward, we wanted to get home. Why? Because we knew home was, is, is where it's at. Home is where we need to be. Reminds me of the story about Samuel Morrison. He was a missionary who gave his life to the continent of Africa. He was coming home to retire. He was on a ship headed for New York Harbor. On the boat with him was uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, who had been in Africa for three weeks hunting big game. When the boat pulled into the New York Harbor, uh, Samuel Morrison, the missionary, noticed the crowds who came to welcome the president home. I mean, there were, were balloons and there was band playing and the banners and people shouting at the president and welcoming him home. And he, however, Samuel Morrison, walked off the same boat completely unnoticed. And it bothered him a little bit. In his mind, he's thinking these thoughts and really almost a prayer to the Lord. And, you know, this president has been in Africa for three weeks killing animals. He comes home and the world welcomes him home. And I've given my life to see souls saved and eternal life given. And, and I come home and nobody notices. Just then he heard the Lord's voice speak to his heart saying, you're not home yet. See, see that's what Peter is telling us. We're not home yet. So again, verse 11, he says, as sojourners, as pilgrims, as travelers heading home, he says, I beg you, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. In other words, as we wait to get to our final destination, heaven, there is a war that's going on. We're in a fight. It's a spiritual battle. We're not only strangers and travelers, but we're soldiers in a war. Listen, we are living in a society. We are being constantly bombarded by fleshly lusts that, that war against our soul. 
And it's pretty obvious that Peter acknowledges that in this world we will be bombarded with desires to do bad things, sinful things, wrong things. The Greek word war here is where we get our English word strategy. The enemy has a strategy to war against your soul. He's got a plan to bring you down, to affect your, your, your personality, your emotions, your will. Whatever he can do to get your focus off of heaven and off your Savior Jesus Christ and onto that fleshly lust, that's his plan. That's why the key to resisting the devil and resisting our fleshly lust, Paul gives us in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, where he says there, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Thus the battle. Our spirit and our flesh, they're like Jacob and Esau. They can never get along. Our old nature, the flesh, and our new nature, the spirit, are constantly at war with each other. But the spirit and the flesh have different appetites, and that is what creates the conflicts. And the appetite you feed the most is going to determine the stronger force in your life. See, Paul is telling us in Galatians 5 that we have a choice. We can walk in the Spirit and utilize every resource that, that God has given and made available to us through His grace, His Word, worship, fellowship, or you can choose to give into the lust of the flesh and look for everything that can satisfy those temporary fleshly, lustly desires. Peter's saying the same thing here when he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. It's a choice that we make. That word abstain means to, to keep away from fleshly lusts. Remove yourself from those places that would increase your appetite to give in to those fleshly desires. Listen, if I'm trying to lose weight, I'm going to stay away from Andy's frozen custard. I'm not going to park my car in their parking lot. I, I shouldn't drive through just to see what they have on the menu. I shouldn't say, well, I'm just going to get some water when I drive through. Or I just want to see if they still have that pumpkin pie concrete. That is so good. You guys are going to head there after service. I know it. No, I'm going to avoid it altogether. See, it's that the fleshly lust to give into it. Because the word fleshly lust here includes much more than just sexual temptations. In fact, Paul gives a list of them in, in, in Galatians 5.20. Yeah, it does include sexual immorality, but also impurity and, and lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, other sins like these. Peter says, get away from those things. Don't make a place for them. Don't, don't give the devil foothold in your life with these things. Avoid them like a plague. Why? Because they war against your spirit. If you give in to those lusts, if you open the door to the evil flesh of these eyes to which this, this is speaking, it wars against your spirit. It's like a military campaign. It's gaining ground in your life. And the more times you give in, the more ground it gains. You don't want these things to gain ground in your life. Don't even open the door to them. Be wise in what you're doing. Be wise in how you're living. If those fleshly lusts are quarreling or jealousy or outbursts of anger, if they're happening in your life, then you need to start feeding your spirit instead of the flesh. Get into God's Word. Read God's Word. Pray. Seek the Lord. If your fleshly lust is, is maybe TV's a problem. You know, you sit down to watch one program and five hours later you're still watching TV. And before you know it, your mind is full of the world's philosophies and the world's ways. Listen, I'm not telling you to get rid of your TV. But what I am saying is that if there's anything in your life that is slowing you down in your walk with the Lord, any fleshly appetite that, 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 that keeps being filled, that you need to starve it to death. 
Our mind needs to be, we're focused on heaven, focused on Jesus. We need to be ready to go. That's why the writer of Hebrews puts it so well in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are also surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I mean, think about a marathon runner. They're not going to stop at Andy's and then stop at McDonald's and then stop at Starbucks. No, they're going to keep focused on what they're doing. They're not going to be slowed down. So I realize that if this world is not my home, I've just passed through, that I'm not going to be interested in, the, in these worthless things. I'm going to be more prone to avoid those, thing, avoid those things that war against the soul. I'll see the responsibilities and the obligations that I have in this life from the eternal perspective. I'll know how to live this life as I wait for the next. I'll make sure my focus is on heaven. This brings us to our third point. We want to make sure that our witness is fine. How do we do that? Look at verse 12. Peter says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, I'm to make a difference in this world by the way in which I live my life. See, this word for Gentiles here is just another name for non-believers. Peter's saying, and the way in which I live, it will have an impact on those that are around me. And that's so true. The way in which we respond to people in situations can determine many times the openness that they will have to receive the gospel. Verse 12 says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. It's like the story I've shared before. It's a a funny story about this, this honest man. He was being tailgated by this stressed out woman on a busy street. Suddenly the light turned yellow and, and the, 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 the in front of him and he, he did the right thing. He stopped before the, the crosswalk, even though he could have floored it and beat the red light. Uh, but he, he stopped. Well, the tailgating woman didn't go so well for her. I mean, she hit the roof. She was so upset and she started honking her horn and screaming in frustration and, 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 and because she missed her chance to get through the, to, through the intersection. And, and while she's ranting and raving, all of a sudden she gets a knock on her, on her, her window and looked up and there was this... Serious-looking police officer standing there. The officer ordered her out of the car with her hands up. He took her to the, to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where, she, where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry, ma'am, for this mistake. You see, I pulled behind your car while you were blowing your horn and, and shouting and cussing at the guy in front of you. I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, plus the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the truck. Naturally, I assumed you stole in the car. You see, Christians need to realize that everywhere we go, we are representing God. We've heard it all before. Oh, you Christians are all alike. You're no different than the next guy. If we're going to be a witness to the lost people around us, listen, we, our, our, our walk must match our talk. There, there should be nothing in our conduct that would give the unsaved ammunition to attack Christ and the gospel. Our good words must match our good works. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5:16: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The entire Bible echoes that truth. I've seen the powerful impact that Christians can make on the lost when they combine a godly life with a loving witness. People come into Christ simply because some loving, dedicated Christian let this light shine on them. That's why Peter says in verse 12 that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean in the day of visitation? It means that when God visits lost sinners and he saves them by his grace, on the day when we stand before God to receive our rewards, the day of visitation, these people will remember your witness to them. The way in which you lived your life and how you were an example to Christ to them and the day they've come to know Christ through you, it'll bring glory to God on that day. It reminds me of the song, and maybe you've heard it before. It's called Thank You by Ray Bolts. Let me read the, the couple of verses. It goes, I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One morning when you said the prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. I love that. See, these people will remember your witness to them, the way in which you poured out love to them, the way you lived your life, and how you were that example of Christ to them, and how they've come to know Christ through you, and it's going to bring glory to God on that day, on that day of visitation. So we need to make sure our witness is fine, not only with our neighbors and our friends, but with those even in authority over us. That's what Peter says next. Look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Ooh, I'm okay being a good example of that, but, but, but submit to, I don't want it. governors and those who rule, that's not what I want to hear. I, I want to hear protest, disobey, march against all this or that, not submit. Now, Peter will give us an explanation why in verse 15, but I'm sure that the people to which Peter was writing this epistle to were probably a lot more discouraged in hearing that word submit than you and I were. Because the amazing thing here is that many of the Christians at that time had lost family members because of the corrupt government that was in place, and so many people would even lose their lives after that. So when Peter's saying, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, they know that Caesar Nero was the guy in charge. And this guy was not a good guy. A wicked man. A brief history of him shows that he came to power when he was just 16 years old, pushed there by his manipulative mom. When he was 17, he poisoned a friend at court. At 18, he plotted to kill his own mother. Three times he fell until he finally had her assassinated. His own senate rebelled against him, but he forced many of them to kill themselves. Where Nero wanted to build greater structures there in Rome to honor himself, he instructed a, a, a great part of the men to burn a great part of the city of Rome, then blamed it on the Christians. He per persecuted the Christians unmercifully. He used them as human torches, strung them up on poles, fed them to wild beasts. His legacy is that of being one of the cruelest men to ever persecute the Christian church. And here you have Peter... Uh, in the same government, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that we need to be in submission to. I think we have a tough man. They had it a lot more tough than we did. But he says here, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Understand that word translated ordinance simply means institution or, or creation. However, it doesn't mean every individual law. Peter says submit to the institution that makes and enforces the laws. 
it's important that we, we respect the office even though we may not respect the man or the woman in the office. And as much as possible, we should seek to cooperate with the government and obey the laws. But we must never allow the law to make us violate or disobey the law of God's word or disobey God's word. I'm sure that people had a hard time respecting Nero. But, but Peter says, listen, if you want to make sure your witness is fine, then respect the office and the institution of those who, who, who enforce the laws. And again, it's possible to submit to the office and institutions and yet disobey the laws when the laws contradict the Bible. There's, there's many examples of this in Daniel chapter 6. Remember, the law was, was enacted a single decree that, that read, any man who petitions any god or any man within the 30 days except King Darius shall be cast into the lion's den. What does Daniel do? Daniel does what he's always done. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. He didn't stop doing what he's always done. No law that says you can't pray to our God is going to stop him from doing what God has called him to do. Another example is found in Acts chapter 5, when Peter was preaching, and then he was arrested. He was warned not to preach again in the name of Christ. Peter went right out there and kept preaching in the name of Christ. Got, got arrested again, and, and they said, didn't we tell you not to preach? To which Peter says in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Listen, if the government tells me I have to pay higher taxes, I have to pay higher taxes. If the government tells me I have to drive 65, I should drive 65. Pray for me on that one. If the government tells me to stop preaching, that's where I draw the line. I'll still be preaching here week after week after week. If the government steps in and tells me what I can and can't preach from God's word, then I will disobey the government. I will break that law. But listen, I will do it with the utmost respect. And if I'm arrested, I'll go peaceably. Now, whenever we read Peter being arrested or the other apostles being arrested, we never read of them kicking their feet, you know, or, 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 or fighting with their arresting officer. Why? Well, because God is concerned about our witness with the world. And when it comes to obeying the government and respecting those in authority, we're to do so in the best way to represent our Lord. Now, I, I have never accepted joyfully a traffic ticket, but I will answer kindly and, and politely and respectfully to the officer that pulled me over. And I'll pay my fine and try to be more careful and obey the laws next time. Hopefully there's not a next time. But we're to be obedient to the law because we're giving a testimony. But the bottom line is God wants us to be a good witness. All the way around. Verse 15, he tells us, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, when we do good, the, the, the foolish men, they, they have nothing to say about us. And the word silence there means to muzzle. It's the idea of putting a muzzle on a barking dog. A lot of barking dogs out there. Oh, you Christians, blah, 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 you know. If we live right, they, it's going to muzzle them. When we submit to ourselves to the institutions that God has placed under us, that's a way of taking away their thunder. See, evidently, Christians were being slandered and falsely accused of evil. That's why Peter says, this is the will of God. This is the will of God for you. We pay no one evil for evil. Don't be a poor witness. Finally, look at verses 16 and 17. He says, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. See, we're free because we're no longer slaves to sin. Jesus Christ paid that price. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're free, but now we're slaves to righteousness. We're now servants of God. That means we're still servants. 
but we just do what our, our new master tells us, or our, our, our savior. See, that word cloak here in verse 16 means a covering. It means a, a means of hiding. In other words, you may say you have Christian liberty. That's free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. You may say you have Christian liberty to, to drink alcohol. But maybe it's just a way of hiding the fact that you, you don't want to give up alcohol. You may say, well, I have the Christian liberty to watch an R-rated movie, but it's just a way of hiding the fact that you want to watch an R-rated movie regardless. Listen, being a Christian and having Christian freedom doesn't mean being free to do as we like. It means free to do what is right. Serving our Lord, serving our King. And, and the way to show that freedom we have in Christ is in our actions. And so Peter says, look at verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Four things Peter says, and then we'll close. Let's look at each one of these. Number one, he says, honor all people. Why does he say that? Because every person is made in the image of God. And every person is a candidate for his redeeming grace. As believers today, we have no right to despise anyone. Whether they hate you or or hate your God, or they practice a certain lifestyle that you disagree with, they're still made in the image of God, and we're to honor all people. We may be dis. We may disagree with them. We may be shocked by their behavior, disgusted by their actions. But as a child of God, we're never to look upon another person with contempt. Honor all people. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we're to mindlessly tolerate any behavior that is aberrant or unscriptural and sinful, not at all. Every single person deserves to be honored, made in the image of God. Secondly, he says, love the brotherhood. Sure, we're to honor all people, but we go way beyond that when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to have a totally unselfish love for, for fellow Christians. Jesus put it this way in John thirteen thirty five: By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's really an interesting statement. We all know it, but I don't think we know what it really means. Essentially, Jesus was, was giving the world permission to, to, to judge us, to look at our lives, to see if the gospel of love that we preach really works among us. I mean, he didn't say that they'll know that you're my disciple by the fact that you love them. No, he said you'll know that you're my disciple by the fact that you love each other. So love the brotherhood, or we'll say sisterhood as well. The number three, fear God. Fear God. Now that doesn't mean, you know, the cowardly lion and the wizard of Oz that you're crouching in fear. This is a a reverential respect and awe of God. This means we're to live in a way that we fear doing anything in our lives that would be displeasing to our God. Bible tells us in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. When a person fears the Lord, his life will be in proper focus. He'll be given a powerful incentive to obey the Lord, even if it might result in suffering at the hands of men. Jesus put it this way in Luke 12, 4 and 5, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more than they, they can do. But I will show you to whom you should fear, Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Finally, Peter says, honor the king. Again, this means continue to show respect to this human institution. Really, fear God and honor the king go hand in hand. We owe honor to the office of the man who rules over us, regardless of who the president is, regardless of his inability or ability, regardless of his tweets. He should be honored because of his office. Because they are in a place, according to the Bible, if I'm reading it right, that God has allowed them to be in that place. So we need to honor them. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Make sure your witness is fine. So as we close, let me ask you, are you ready to go? You say, come on, Pastor Tom, I was ready 20 minutes ago. What's keeping you so long? No, that's not what I mean. 
If Christ should return today, are you ready to go? If the Lord should choose to take you home today, are you ready to go? Have you made sure your foundation is on Christ? Have you made sure your focus is on heaven, is on Jesus Christ? Have you made sure your witness is fine? If not, get ready, folks, because Jesus is coming soon. Starting in December, we're going to do a two-part series on Wednesday nights on the rapture of the church. The, the what, when, why, how, all that. We're going to be starting that Wednesday, December 6th and 13th. Come out for it. Why? Because I believe the signs are here. Jesus is coming back soon, so we need to get ready to go. I want to close with the last verse of Christ the Solid Rock hymn. It goes like this. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, thoughtless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you're this morning, you're not standing on Jesus Christ as your foundation. If you don't know him as your Lord and as your Savior, you're sinking fast, let me tell you. You don't have time to wait. Turn your life over. Submit your life to Jesus Christ. Give your life to him. He'll give you new life, abundant life, eternal life. Life not only in heaven, but life on this earth. He'll give you His Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you in all truth, His Word to speak to your heart. If you're not giving your life to Him this morning, surrender today. Give your life to Him. Don't leave here without making that commitment to Him. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we know, Lord, through Your Word, that Your return is near. Help us to get ready, Lord to be ready to go, to make sure our foundation is built upon you, Jesus Christ, not upon anything else in our lives, not upon our money, our financial status, or our, our, our position, but upon you, Lord God. Lord, help us to, 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 to keep our eyes focused upon your Son, Jesus Christ, upon heaven, upon our eternal destination, our inheritance that you have for us. And Lord, help us to make sure that our, our witness is fine. Lord, help us not to blow our witness. Help us to walk in the Spirit that we may not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never made that commitment to follow you. Lord, they, they, they don't know you as the Lord and as their Savior. But this morning you've spoken to their hearts and they want to turn over their life to you. They want to surrender their heart to you this morning. I pray that you touch their heart. Speak to their heart that they would do so here today before they leave. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again this morning? You'd want to know that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven to be with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? We thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you for your word. Help us to walk in your word and in your ways this week as we seek to glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.